Hey, this is Brian Caber. You're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Make sure you tune in. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? I'm hanging in there, Tommy. The coronavirus is not going to beat me down. We just keep on plugging away with the interviews, one after the next, and it's been a been a lot of fun. I mean, what else can you really say at this point? Well, Mike, I'm doubly excited today. We not only bring on a former pirate, we've got some special announcement to make ourselves. We have joined the What You Expect family of podcasts, Michael. What You Expect is the platform that brings music, sports, and culture content to the masses. We just joined their podcast list this week, and man, I'm excited about it. There's a lot of things to be excited. I'm, I'm I'm happy as to how the podcast has grown and developed over these short two years. I mean, who, who would have expected uh, after that first episode that we had that we'd still be kind of plugging away at this and, and getting to interview people like Mike Enzi on the show today? And, and what I find is there's going to be a lot of irony in this episode. But the irony that I take away is our very first broadcast as we're leading into that Miles Powell junior season where, where the team has to transition away from the Angel Delgado KC monster recruiting class, we're opening that first podcast debating about the unforgotten man, right? We're talking about everybody in that recruiting class and everybody forgot about Mike Enzi. And we're always starting off all these interviews with why the next guy on our list has kind of, you know, fallen through the cracks or might not be remembered as much in their seat and hole lore. I know Mike just graduated a couple of years ago, so everyone's going to remember him. But looking back, I think people are going to forget that he was part of that monster 2014 recruiting class when it all started. And Mike should be grouped into all those other names that put Seton Hall back on the map. And we're going to talk to Mike about a lot of other things besides basketball, but he really should have a special star on the wall relative to Seton Hall being relevant again. What I think, Mike, is that Mike seemed to be one of those quiet players. He just seemed to do his job, get in there, work hard, and he never complained, and he wasn't a flashy guy. So I think a lot of people are going to be surprised about some of the things that get brought up during this podcast. Everyone has their role on a team, and I, like I said, I think Mike played his role well, but Mike developed not only as a ball player, I think Mike developed as a man in terms of leadership, uh, both professionally and from a sports perspective, as his career took this five-year path at Seton Hall. And I think that's the uniqueness of his story. Here's a foreign-born player, once again, coming to explore his dreams and then reaching the pinnacle of success you know, in his Seton Hall basketball career and what he goes on to do in the rest of his life. 
that's a pretty cool story. So I am excited about this one. Absolutely. And before we start, check out what you expect at wyexpect.com and follow them on Twitter with the handle at wyexpect. And thank you to Pete Fabiano for introducing us to Mike. And here we go. He is one of only three four-time NCAA tournament participants for the Seton Hall Pirates. Played from 2015 to 2019. First all-time in most games played in program history with 135. Four-time Big East All-Academic team member and 2018-19 Big East Scholar-Athlete of the Year. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Mike Enzi. Mike how are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, it's a Saturday. Happy. It's the weekend. You know, we don't look forward to a lot of things these days. So weekend is one thing I'm pretty much happy about. Thanks for joining the show again, Mike. Appreciate it. We look forward to the weekends here too. Thank you guys for having me. All right, Mike. So right out of the gate, if you've listened to any of our recent podcasts, we do a standard coronavirus wellness check-in. How you doing? Friends and family, are they safe and healthy? What's your status? Um, everyone's safe and healthy. Um, I've been working from home, so I haven't really had the chance to go outside a lot. So I haven't been exposed to the virus at all. Um, so, um, but I'm checking out for my friends and family who get to go out every day. My host mom currently works at a hospital. Um, so she's pretty fine, but everyone's safe and healthy and we're thankful for that. We're glad to hear that you're working from home. So I'm thinking the guys at Goldman Sachs are feeling a little down and out. They don't have their ringer on the company basketball team now. I mean, there's no basketball going on right now. So no one's actually thinking about that much basketball. But uh, thankfully, we have the NBA back. All we do now is just watch basketball and talk about it. All right, Mike, on, on a more serious note, we've been asking all of our guests to share their perspective on the social injustice issues that are facing our country. But I, what I find interesting is that in 2018, you were invited to be a member on a panel that discussed athlete discrimination at the prestigious Learfield Forum. So can you compare how those thoughts back then and those conversations parallel to the time that we're facing and the challenges that we're facing today? One of the big things I stressed about in college is just the fact that other students look at athletes differently. They just have this thought in their head naturally that if you're an athlete, you're dumb or you can't do no work or you're just in school for basketball. And I just feel that's the same, that the same thing the world is currently seeing right now in terms of like the social injustice. I myself, I'm African-American. I was born and raised in Nigeria, but I understand firsthand and I see what's going on in this country. And it's actually unbelievable that we, in 2020, we're still talking about this. I've read a lot of books about Nelson Mandela, The Long Walk to Freedom, and I've read about all the social injustice that went on in South Africa. And it's pretty much the same thing that's going into play right here. So for me, I'm just really from a human's perspective, I'm happy people are actually standing up for their rights. I think it's a good thing. Everybody deserves to be treated equal and everybody deserves equal opportunities in life. So. I just feel like um, the world is heading for the right direction. Well, the journey you've taken in your life has got to be mind-blowing, Mike. It's probably hard to imagine that when you were growing up as a kid, like you mentioned, Nigeria and uh, Makurdi, I believe it was, uh, that yes. you'd be taking this leadership role in kind of a political issues here in the United States. That's got to be amazing for you. 
I mean, it's a good thing when you get an opportunity to speak. Um, you have to be able to speak what you believe in. I feel like people respect you and put you in a leadership position. When you say something, you actually do it. I know throughout my time in college, I was always a big believer of practice what you preach. My first big leadership role in college was being the captain. I'm not going to tell the young freshman to go in the gym and shoot extra shots. If I'm not shooting extra shots, it would make sense for me to tell him to shoot extra shots. So I just feel like if you want to talk about something, you have to actually believe it and you have to actually be doing it. That's Got to lead by example. I totally get it. Yes. Well, Mike, you know, we've always taken a big pride about our international born athletes at Seton Hall. You know, when you go all the way back to like our tourists and Andrew Gaze and players like that, when players come from outside the U.S., we're always intrigued about how they got interested in basketball, especially coming from countries that were more soccer based. So how old were you when you started playing? Um, I was actually 15 when I started playing basketball. I didn't know much about basketball. Not a lot of people play basketball where I come from. I was a big soccer guy. I still watch soccer on the weekend every day up to now. Didn't have no interest in basketball until I started growing tall. Uh, when I started growing tall, it became a thing of like, okay, I have to find what's best fit for me. And one thing just led to another. I found myself playing basketball, and it became a natural thing for me. You just ask yourself, like, where have, where have this been all all this time? And I just picked it. I realized I started pretty late. I had a, a lot of good people around me at that time who were willing to work with me, uh, which is pretty much the story of my life. I've always had the opportunity to meet people who are like, hey, we're going to help you. We're going to. So it was just more like I was ready to put in the work every day. And two years I was playing at a high level. For me, I just feel like meeting basketball, falling in love with the game, and working hard at it just pretty much built like my basketball career. Now, I found a real interesting interview with a former high school teammate of yours, Kasum Yakwe, where he said he started playing soccer as well, but as he got taller, all his friends kept making him play goalie. And he's like, I don't want to play goalie. I can't do this. Was that the same situation for you? Yeah, that's the, that's the same story. It, it's a thing where, as a kid in Africa, I don't know about much part of, like, all the parts of Africa, but pretty much West Africa and Nigeria, where I grew up, if your parents tell you to be goalie, it means you suck. <laughs> in the court. So for us, it was a big insult, but if you think about it, they're thinking about it from a point of, oh, we have an advantage because you're really tall, you're going to be goalie, and no one's going to be able to score on us. But you, as a pride thing, you're like, no, I'm never going to be goalie. <laughs> and I, that was my, the end of my soccer career. I never wanted to be goalie. And so I, when I met basketball, it was just so easy because at that time I was done with soccer already. So it's I, I can relate to what Kasum said. It's pretty much the same story for everybody. So, so it sounds like you fell in love with basketball, but then there's the potential of playing basketball in your home country versus the dream of playing it on a higher level in the United States, like a lot of other international players are transitioning. So I've also found an article that, I, that, that caught my attention, and in the article from the New York Post back in March of 2019, you spoke about a conversation with Chris Obekwa, uh, formerly of Our Savior American and player for St. John's, about the idea of coming over to play in the States. And you said to Chris, Chris, 
Where in Nigeria? You're crazy. What are you talking about? How is that ever going to happen? At what point did Chris convince you that the dream could become a reality to play ball in the United States? So that, my friend Chris, he's a really funny guy. Just think about it. He started playing basketball before me. Um, he was pretty, really instrumental in terms of like one of the first people who just started like, oh, okay, I'll show you how to do this. Oh, I'll teach you how to dunk, stuff like that. So um, when Chris started playing really well, he started going to different camps. And Chris would just always pitch basketball to me. And for me, I was just playing. Kids love to have fun. I was just having fun. And Chris was like, you know, this is more than having fun, right? And I was like, what are you talking about every time? And Chris would take me to his house because I didn't have cable. He would take me to his house. I remember he was like, there's this guy, LeBron James. Like, because we, 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 could, we couldn't watch a full NBA game because the games start in Nigeria time, 3 a.m. in the morning. So I wasn't going to go to my friend's house at 3 a.m. to watch an NBA game. No. So he would like the replay, he would take me to his house to watch the replay. And it was so exciting just seeing like NBA players. And then we started buying DVD tapes of like highlights, Michael Jordan highlights, Vince Carter highlights. I haven't seen highlights. And one mixtape. And we would just, after playing basketball, we would just watch it. And it's just like, can I ever do that? Stuff like that. We would just like dream and, and practice at it. So when Chris went to like, the NBA basketball without borders camp in South Africa. He met a couple NBA players. He met Declan Whiskey. And somebody asked the question at that camp that, do you see any of these kids as being ready to go to the, like the NBA yet? And the and one of the NBA players has said, not yet. Uh, there's still like a lot of untapped talent in them. A lot of these kids would do well of going to college that there's not a big enough talent to go right from Africa straight to the NBA at the grassroots level. So Chris was really pissed. He came back home. Basketball was his thing. He was so serious about it. Seeing his passion kind of like put it up on me. Once I saw things started working for him, I was like, he loves it. He's giving his all and he's doing everything. At that point, I had no doubts but to follow his footsteps. And he would just tell me like, do you stay at home and visualize playing in America in the NBA and stuff like that? I was like, man, you're just talking. How's that going to happen? And so, <laughs> about stuff. Like, it's really like you're dreaming. Like, we can't even afford to buy our own pair of shoes at that point. We can't even afford that. We were just, like, having fun every day. But he was seeing way past that. And I wasn't seeing no dream of even coming in the United States at that point. And... When I think, look back at it, I just like, he really like brought this idea into my head on like taking basketball to the next level. I wasn't interested. I wasn't ready to leave home. So pretty much I was just, this is something I'll just come do every day. The good thing is even though it was just for fun, I was still trying to be the best at that time in our town. I think that kind of helped me because I just wasn't playing for fun only. I still wanted to be the best. So when the time came and the call started coming, for me to go play at different tournaments, I was ready. So, and everybody saw my talent at that time when, when the calls started coming. So I think all that just contributed to me coming to the United States and going to college, so. All right, so you're, you're watching the highlight videos from all the uh, all the players, Michael Jordan, uh, Vince Carter, 
when I grew up, I'm watching Michael Jordan in the finals against the Lakers, and he goes up with the right hand, but then he pulls it back down and finishes with the layup on the other side. And I, I Tommy and I joke, I got no game. I got no hang time. But every kid is going out into their local hoop trying to replicate that play. What, what kind of moves were you trying to replicate after you watched these videos with Chris? I mean, for us at that time, he was just pretty much – like the dunks, we 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 like. I remember watching his kind of tapes, like Insanity, and just knowing that there was no way we could ever do any of those dunks. It's not like we would just see something and just go try it. No, we would go work at it. I remember running every day because I told someone, "What would it take for me to jump that high?" Just like you got to run every day, you got to climb the stairs, you got to do jumping exercise, you got to keep your ropes, and I was doing this stuff every day, and. By the time I started feeling my jump coming, my legs were getting stronger, I would go try this stuff. You see Michael Jordan make a move. I, at that point, we just know we can't, I, we couldn't do that. So we just try to do the things that we felt were more easier for us to get at first. I mean, you know, we would try the easy dunks, the 360, you know, just like, so Vince Scott would do a lot of 360. An so. easy 360 dunk, Michael. Okay. All right, Michael. <laughs> you're, making, you're making me feel jealous now. All right. So obviously your, your game is developing. You agree to take the opportunity to come to the United States. You're at the age of 17. Our savior assistant coach, Eric Yaklish, picks you up from the airport. What do you remember of those first couple days in the United States? It was weird, to be honest. Um, I remember comparing that America was really cold. When Chris has visited, he gave me a really big jacket. And I was like, I don't need this in Nigeria. He's like, don't worry, you're going to need it soon. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, so when I told him what day my flight was, he was like, well, remember that jacket I gave you? Just bring it with you. You're going to need it. <laughs> so, like, I remember, I wasn't sure... I remember just going on the flight and I wasn't sure because I wouldn't have a phone when I come here right away. I wasn't sure who was meeting me in the airport. So it was just like, okay, I'm just going to get off the flight, just walk outside because they told me someone's going to be there waiting for you. So as soon as I came out, he saw me, he recognized me and he walked right to me. And I could just recognize him from the speeches on Facebook. And because we, a lot of the talk we talked on Facebook, there was no FaceTime. Pretty much, there was. I don't think there was a video calls at that point. So we all just come and get on Facebook and phone calls, and that was just it. So like, I could just recognize him from his profile pictures on Facebook. And I remember my first big shock was working out the airport. The cold hit me so bad. It was in November, and it was just after the um, Hurricane Sandy. So it hit me so bad. I I just I, I froze. I just stopped. <laughs> A little bit, and he laughed. <laughs> I've picked up a lot of kids, and I get the same reaction. And I was like, "Yeah, this is super cold." And he was like, "You got a jacket on. Don't worry, you get used to it." So at that point, they got they bought me gloves, bought me like like scarves, just because I couldn't stand it. But uh, my first impression at that time, it was just pretty much like everything was rough at that time, just because Hurricane Sandy. So I was just like, "How come they have no power?" And everyone was like, "Oh." A storm came. I was like, we're not used to storms. I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, I remember my first meal was going to KFC. It was KFC was the first thing I had. Straight out the airport, I went to St. John's game. Um, I, don't, I can't remember who St. John's was playing. 
but it was the beautiful, the most beautiful basketball I ever saw. Like the gym, the fans, I thought I was in heaven or something. It was so perfect. And the first thing Chris told me as soon as he got in the game, he was like, this is where you want to be, bro. And I was, I said, yeah, I like it. It's nice. <laughs> It's, it's funny, but it's, it was just, it's like you think of something at some point and then you actually walk into it and see it happen. And I'm watching my friend live his dream and he's coming out to tell me I could be doing the same thing. So at no point did he ever stop telling me that we could do this. And even when I decided to stop playing basketball, he was so mad. He called me and the first thing he told me, he was like, yeah, God gave me a talent. And you want to wake up and say you don't want to do it again. You're not hurt. You still could play. There's a lot of kids who would want to play, but you just, I was like, bro, it's way beyond basketball at this point. But that was a conversation we we had for like an hour. I had to explain to him. But it was like more of like, it was good. It was good. Basketball was fun for us. If only if the audience could see the smile on Mike's face as he's telling that story, it's priceless. So you show up in America, you're 17, and you start going to our savior new American school in Center Reach, New York. Now that's in Suffolk uh, County in the Long Island. But it seems like the school must have had a great scouting uh, team because you had teammates, like we said. You had Kasum Yakwe, who ended up at St. John's. You also had Sheck Diallo, who went on to play at Kansas and now is in the NBA. So how dominant was that front line on that basketball team? And how bad were you beating those boys out in the island? Okay, so this is the basketball story for me. So coming to the U.S., you didn't know what to expect. Okay, they want me to come, so they probably need a player. That's what I thought. I was like, okay, they need players. They probably don't have players. So I, I was excited. I was like, okay, I'm going to be the guy on the team. I've seen a lot of basketball movies about high school, so it's fun. But when I came, I remember being so tired and me being the hard worker that I am, I was sleeping in the principal's office because I was really so tired. And one of the coaches, his name is Kelly Martin, he was like, hey, Mike, it's a Sunday. We usually have open gym. I know you're really tired, long flight, but would you want to play? I was like, yeah, sure. And from that day, he said he fell in love with me because he's never seen a kid that would come right off the flight and would want to play. And I was like, I mean, what did I come here to do? And then he introduced me to my teammates. And when the game started, everybody was so good. And I was like, so why would you guys, I asked him that question out of all honesty, why would you guys need players if you got all these guys? And he's like, oh no. We do it as a thing. We just trying to help kids. Um, and like, we know your story. We believe in you. Uh, we think you could help our team. And also we want to contribute to your journey. And I was like, okay, cool. And after playing, I mean, I had fun playing with those guys, but I just realized one thing, right? From the start, that my basketball level is not the same as everybody else. Not that they were better than me. They just understood the game at a different level more than I, I already know. So I walked up to the coach and I was like, I really don't have that much time. So I would love to like do the extra work to catch up. And he was like, oh, when are you ready? I said, tomorrow. And he looked at me again. He's like, I pick you up 6 a.m. 6 a.m. I was waiting for him. And he would run me down the gym every day. 
because it, it was fast paced. America's basketball is fast paced. I love running. Um, if you ask some of my college teammates, I love running. Um, so it was just a thing of like, we worked timelessly in the gym until I felt I was in a place where I could compete at a high level. Well, you must have picked up real quickly because you had some serious highlights, including a game where you matched up in a Long Island versus New York City All-Star game against future teammate Isaiah Whitehead. Now, you won MVP in that game, Mike. Now, be honest with us. How many times did you jab Isaiah with that little comment during the times you were at school? Oh, no, we never really talked about it. I mean, we did talk about it. So um, the, the, the funny thing is... Desi, Isaiah Whitehead, we've played on the same team, on the same AAU team at like different, we, we played probably like two or three times, two to three different tournaments before that, before that game. But it was, it was from, a, that game was from a place of like, who was the best team in New York at that time? Everybody was talk, would, would say Isaiah, because a lot of people knew who Isaiah was. And we at our Savior, we felt that type of way we asked our coach to, 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 to set up a game with them. And he said, due to New York City rules, we cannot. We said we've played everybody in the country and we beat them. Why wouldn't they give us our respect in New York? So going into that game, I didn't really care, to be honest. I just wanted to have fun. It was an all-star game. Um, I wanted to go play and come back home. But my teammates was like, no. Since they never wanted to play us, this is our savior versus Lincoln. <laughs> so I still have a picture of the game of me and Isaiah. It's on my phone. I just saw it recently and I, I downloaded it. I was like, one day I'm going to make fun of Isaiah. Isaiah was pushing me and someone took a picture. So I had it. I remember winning the MVP. It was fun because, um, I mean, when they came back, I, I remember on the free throw line, Desi whispered to me, bro, you should just come to St. Hall. Because at, at that time, Desi, I wasn't committed. And I was like, oh, yeah, bro, um, I'm thinking about it. And we went on to play at the Jordan Brad Classic. I was still not committed. And I had fun uh, playing Desi, Kadeem, Angel. They were all single all commits at that time, and I was not. And I just realized, like, oh, these guys, I, I like playing against or with them. I probably just joined them because at that point, when I visited single hall, it was perfect. I loved the guys. New freshman class. I was like, why not? And I, I remember joining it. And it's a, it was a great four years with those guys. So it wasn't no regrets. All right, Mike. So, so let's let's talk about that recruitment specifically, right? So you are the last addition to that heralded Isaiah Whitehead 2014 recruiting class because, as you mentioned, you sign late in the spring. And yes. at that point, you were probably a little bit under the radar according to the recruiting services. I know you're winning MVPs in these all-star games, but 24-7 rankings had you at like 377 or something disrespectful to that, to that extent, right? Okay, besides Seton Hall, who else was taking a look at you besides Desi recruiting you on the free throw line at that point? Because, you know, when we see some of these numbers that are not your top 100, top 150, we don't see as many of the big schools getting involved. So who else was taking a look at you? Uh, I'll be honest, I had a couple of schools call me, like me majors, but the first big school that gave me a call was Iowa. And and it was pretty much at a tournament in Las Vegas. It was called the Vegas Eight. I remember playing in that game and Chris Paul walking up to me and Miles Park. Miles Park, 
that, I played weak Miles Power at that game, and it was fun. And it was pretty much like Iowa coach called me at my visit. He was like, Mike, I've gone to three different tournaments not to see you. I went to the first tournament. I didn't know who you were. I went to watch a kid that couldn't keep up with you. <laughs> then I saw you at the NBA Global Challenge in DC representing Africa. And you had limited minutes, but you still finished among the top 10 players in the tournament with you playing lesser minutes. I came to watch everybody else. Your name wasn't on the roster that we got. I was like, yeah, I was, I was a late addition. Uh, a lot of people didn't know who I was until just like me, I started playing for the players and played a few tournaments. Because the thing with my recruiting was I wasn't allowed to play AAU my junior year. Uh, I don't I forgot what the rule was because I had just moved to the U.S. And they said I could only play during non-life period. So when the life period, when all the cameras are out, the coaches were sitting down, I couldn't play. I would sit at school and watch my teammates go play and come back. And I would, they would tell me about it during lunch. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> and then the non-life period, I would be like, hey, come play for us. There's no coach. Why am I playing? So it was more like Iowa was the first school who gave me a call. And it was like, they told me, we've seen you. We've came to your school. We bought you. You've done it times and times. I don't have to see any more games or anything. I think we have to be interested in you. And I, at that point, I had no knowledge of what school I wanted to go to. I'm in the United States. I, I could barely count the 50 states at that point. So I <laughs> <laughs> always sound so great to me. I was so happy with the, the coach told me everything and he was pretty honest. He told me he understood my game, explained everything to me. And at that point, my coach was like, it was too early um, for you to like, make this decision. You just moved to the US. You don't understand how the basketball system works yet. You want to make sure you keep doing what you do. Most schools are going to keep calling you. So um, I was just really like the first big school that, that gave me that chance or like, gave me that offer. I think it kind of like opened the way for more schools to like check out who I was. And I remember going to play in this um, AAU tournament. And after that tournament, like my, my phone wouldn't stop ringing. And at that point, I was really confused. <laughs> like, and I was like, I don't know how this goes. And fast. <laughs> I started asking Chris, and but before then, I was I was I would watch the Big East. I would watch because my friend plays in the Big East. I would watch the Big East. I would see, see I would watch them play against Seon Hall and stuff like that. So when Seon Hall offered, he was like, "That's cool." All they do is like they like to shoot a lot, and he would just say stuff. And then when I visited Seon Hall, it was just laughing. You know, I don't know. You know, you just come in the gym. It's like what I love to do. They told, from the first day I walked in, they gave me a jersey, like, hey, let's play. I told you, when I came to you, our savior, the first thing they wanted me to do was play. I love it. Like, if I'm playing basketball, I'm not going to go somewhere and see people playing. And I want to play. So when I played with them, I remember Sterling Gibbs being on that team. It was a lot of fun. Brandon Mobley. And I was like, I love these guys. I want to I wanted be a 
Well, good thing you chose South Orange because if you thought Long Island was cold, Iowa was going to be a new level of cold you would have never experienced. So you choose Seton Hall. We're excited about it, obviously. But irony of all ironies, in 2014, you were ruled ineligible at Seton Hall after being unable to produce homework from our savior. Now, you obviously went on to have an outstanding academic track record at Seton Hall. How frustrating was it for you to sit out due to NCAA red tape? I mean, North Carolina gets away with putting fake classes online and you got to sit because you can't find your homework from last year. Tom, homework, Tommy. We're talking about homework. <laughs> it's more like, you know, like everything happens for a reason. Um, when I look back at it now, I wouldn't wish things had gone any other way. But for me, as a young kid back then, it was it was a pretty much sad time for me. I felt I've been under the radar a lot. And my last couple of games before going into college, I started understanding myself as a basketball player, knowing what I could do. I remember um, one of the other recruiters and all the people who tweet about players would come to games and would tweet Michael Enzi could go in the college game with the way he plays and he would average eight and eight. I'm not a player who is flashy. I I just love to play. I like playing with guys. I feed off everybody. So I knew I could do that at a high level as well. So I was really ready. I was happy we came to school early i was ready to go so when they told me that news it just kind of set me back and i was like i have my notes i just don't keep like why would i keep my homework like why would i do that it was like okay just get much as much as much work that you have i said i remember like in high school the teachers would tell me to, to make sure i organize my notes i tell them i don't do it in nigeria like that if I'm not failing, you can't tell me <laughs> how to do my learning style. I know how I, I need to learn. I know how I need to do my work. So I remember taking like two bags full of works because my bad tests, I would throw them out. Not that I had too many, but like I'll keep the good one. I never wanted to see the bad one. So I sent everything to them, but it still wasn't enough. And I was like, why did I fail? My teacher was like, you probably, your grade probably looks good and they, they don't think it's yours. I was like, okay. And Coach, I remember Coach Wheeler coming, calling me into his office because at that point, I was scared because um, a teammate of mine was sent by the school he committed back to prep school. I was so ready for college. I was. I, I didn't want to go back to prep school. Coach Wheeler called me into his office. He was like, there's two things that could happen here. Um, a lot of people who go back to prep school and I'll just try to prove the grade. But this is what I think you should do. You should, you should be uh, just a regular student for a year, get your graders up, and then that way we could send it to, into the end. And so the way I said, how many semesters do they need? And he said, one, just one semester. If you do really well this semester, by December, you become part of us. And I just remember being a regular student. Imagine coming into a school and you can't even go. I go to the games and I would sit with it was fun because I was still cheering for my dad. I couldn't be at practice. So just think about six months of your life not doing no basketball. And upon that happening, a week after that, I broke my wrist. 
So it's like two things. So at that point, it was like uh, a lot of bad stuff was happening. You just rest. Yeah, but so, the, this whole thing, Mike, is about <laughs> irony that Tom talks about. So now you break your hand, you would have you would have lost the season anyway. So I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, certain things happen for a reason. And after you get that year under your belt and you acclimate yourself, you're now flourishing with your academics. You move on to playing basketball for Seton Hall for a solid four years. And Tom and I were going through the rap sheet. I know the team had some great success, but when we started diving into the individual accomplishments that you had in big moments, you know, I, I think they were kind of lost. You were surrounded by a lot of other big superstars on the team. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a couple uh, topics and kind of highlight what your performance was and associate it to those big moments. And the first thing that I want to start with are the double doubles that you had in your career. Now, I know you only had five, but there are three of them that stand out to us that were huge moments, not only for Seton Hall, but they were probably for you as well. And the first one is at Rutgers, you're coming off the injury, you're coming off the ineligibility. It's your red cert freshman year. You score 13 points, 12 boards, and Seton Hall just absolutely thumps Rutgers <laughs> 84 to 55 at the rack of all places. Love that one. <laughs> and, and this is your first. You're not the story. only one that loved that one, Mike. Of course he's going to love this one. Come on. I, I serve these up on a silver platter, man. Come on, Mike. That, that's your first career start. Ish is out with his dislocated shoulder. Could you have dreamed of your first start going any better? Uh, no. Uh, honestly, as a player that plays off other people, you know, one thing you have to be honest with who you are, you know, our coach told me before the game, I need you out there to fill out his shoes, which is play defense, help the guys. So I was going in there and I pretty much was like, okay, I've always been the guy. I've always been this guy that loves to run, loves to score, but my role now is to make sure I'm like covering for everybody, the foreman, I'm hedging screens, I'm talking, I'm doing all that. So I was really ready at that point to do really well at playing defense for that game. I remember going to Ish and he would tell you this and asking him, hey, what do you do at this position? What are you doing? And he was like, okay, step back, make sure when you see somebody cutting, scream to Kadeem, tell Angel, stay here. Once Angel's here, you go forward. And I was like, okay. And I remember going back to him like, is that how to do it? He's like, yeah, yeah, do it like that every time. And then I just remember, like, like if you watch the highlights, things were just falling. Like, Zig was is incredible. Like, some of the passes he gave to me. We were just, like, young and balling and having fun. And it was so good we came out victorious in that game because it was like, you know, you needed that chief on your shoulders. So it was really good for me. It was unexpected for me. I felt like I did what Coach wanted me to do. And I got a plus. The plus was me still getting like, you know, every player loves to score. Every player loves double doubles. So it was, I just feel like that was a plus to the victory that we had and to me showing coach how to play defense. So <laughs> I was happy, really happy. I was like, okay, I think this is going to get me more minutes at this point. So I was really happy. Well, if you were happy in that game, let's move on to your senior season. It's the Big East opener against St. John's. St. John's came in undefeated at 12-0. The Pirates are running on a five-game winning streak, including surprising wins against Kentucky and at Maryland. You put in 14 points, grabbed 10 rebounds, but everything's forgotten about that game except Shavar beating the buzzer 
with that three pointer, man. Describe the emotions on the sidelines after Shavar's shot goes in. So I just give you a run through of that game. Remember how the game started? It was so much hype. St. John's is gonna come run them out of the gym. St. John's is gonna come run them out of the gym. I know the St. John fan who I've worked with, his name is Dion. He wouldn't stop talking about how much they would beat us and how he's gonna be at the game. And they hit a couple shots. I think it was like five shots as the game started. So I was just like, okay, we couldn't hit our shots. And Quincy and all the guys, they were doing a good job in finding me in the middle. And I was like, okay, the ball's getting to me. The one thing I want to always have a high percentage on is like not missing around the ring. So I was pretty much like playing off what the guys were giving to us. So, I mean, we came back in the game. And at that point, I think I was outside the game and St. John's was up. And I remember when coach called that timer and they drew up a play, you know, you just hope You've seen a lot of miracles, but sometimes you don't know if it's going to happen or not. So <laughs> when that shot went up and we saw it go in, I remember everybody running to the other bench and chasing Shamal. And I, we we, still, we watched the video over and over again, and everybody laying down on top of him. It was just from a point going into the season, how everybody talked about seeing how was going to be like a food map that everybody's gonna walk through and then we're starting the season the biggest season being the best the team that was like like people talk about st john's being like the best team that season and they've proved it before that game by win by being undefeated and so it, it was just added to like a lot of the stuff we've done from going to like people saying oh this team sucks because all the other guys left like St. John's beat nobody. They played a cupcake schedule for that 12 and hour. Don't get me started. Don't Put, get me putting, started. Putting <laughs> Dion on blast. There you go. Going back to work saying, hey, Dion, how'd that game go for you? <laughs> but, but by the end of the season, uh, you guys had proved that you belong. I, I thought that that game, as you mentioned, cause it was kind of your stamp on the season to be like, we're here. We're, we're, we're for real. We're going to be a part of this mix. And now all of a sudden you find yourselves – in the semifinals of the Big East tournament uh, against Marquette. And this game was just, this, this is just a crazy game. Seton Hall 81, Marquette 79, 58 fouls called, 85 free throws attempted, nine technical fouls, three players ejected, Sandro out, Sakara Nim out, our best friend Theo John out. Miles Powell was also ejected, but wait a minute. No, he wasn't. Came back. He scored 14 points. 15 rebounds you fouled out this is this is a crazy game have you ever played in a more bizarre and chippy game than that no um i feel like i'll take you back because it was pretty one of my best seasons just in terms of like not just basketball and my performance and just it's just in terms of like me knowing how much i mean to the team not on the basketball court but just you know, with like my personal relationship and wanting the guys to see a certain see see teams a certain way. Going into that season, I was like a fifty percent from the line. And I remember the game at home. We needed the last two games of the season to make it to the NCAA. And oh, if yeah. You remember, oh yeah, 
I got I had a foul in the first quarter, like five minutes into the game for for getting in the shuffle with Tio John. So I got beat in my cat in that game. There was like a little, you know, bad bad energy in the air. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They went they wanted to pay us back. And at that point you saw how confident even at Nelson, who was a freshman, was standing up for his teammate Sandro. So he was like, boys became men at that point. They wanted to punk us. We are saying, no, you can't. We're here. And that's, I feel like that's why that game went like that. And I pre- it's pretty much one of the best games that season, to be honest. Because, like, you could tell we gave it our all. We were down and we still fought and came back. So you could tell that like, everyone came in ready to fight. If we weren't mentally tough, we would have gave up. So I think everything worked out for us that day. Because I know I seen Miles Power leave, I was just like, oh my God, now it's just one of our biggest soldiers is down. So what are we going to do? And seeing him come back and the way everybody went crazy kind of gave us momentum. It's like, okay, our guy's back. Let's go. So um, that was a really crazy game. It was really fun. Actually, one of the craziest and easily one of the best games I've ever played. Now, not to belabor the point, you already mentioned it, that nine days prior, there was another game against Marquette, and yeah. Theo, your buddy Theo John against was, was in the center of some extracurricular activity there. <laughs> now, did that start up with a single point, or did that was that building and building and building? And, and what did Theo really say to you underneath there? So, if you ask anybody... I would never curse out, cuss a player out. I would never trash talk. I would, you I could trash talk that. Theo John, Mike. You could trash talk Theo John. That's okay. That's okay. Okay, so going into that game, we needed two. We needed two games to make it to the tournament. We needed the last two, and this was the two at that time. They were the two best teams in the Big East. Oh yeah, one, one, one and two in the standings, absolutely. So coach was like, "You guys could do it. Don't let no one." Thank you. And I remember coming into the gym. I'll say this right here. And I tell these guys, I'm like, guys, it's one thing I used to know how to do in Nigeria. Our coach would always tell us, like, go there and fight. So I was really, like, I'm ready to go in the game. I'm not coming in the game with this game without, like, a victory. I'm, I'm a big guy on LinkedIn. Sinho alumni was, in, like, sending me messages on LinkedIn. It was like, Mike, we love you guys. We support you guys. We all going to be out there for you. That was all I needed. Despite all the negative messages you could see about the team on Twitter and like people tweet stuff, knowing that people were still willing to come out, knowing that we're playing the number one team to support us, that was like, I was like, we can't let them down. We can't. So I remember going to that game. Normally, someone would call me the B word or tell me F you or something. And I wouldn't even say nothing back. It's not like I'm scared, but it's just like I was raised. If it's not a time for me to defend myself and to fight, I wouldn't want to fight anybody. So I remember just being like super hyped, super like ready for anything at that game. And he made a basket. Okay, you made the basket, but he still went on to scream the B word at me. So I was like, okay, <laughs> you made your basket. I had a foul. Why are you screaming at me? So I was like, he, 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 he played so fast in my head, and I went straight at him. I was like, you. And not, you're not allowed to say that to me. You're lucky we under. And he was like, okay, basket. There's a lot of energy going on. And he was talking back right in my face. And I remember, remember, like, just leave your hands down, Mike, so you don't get attacked or something. 
And I feel like it wasn't anything before that. It all just happened in that moment. And I felt like a lot of Seahawks Hall fans loved it. <laughs> and they hyped it up for the next game. See, poor, poor Theo John has got a bad role model in Coach Wojo. That's the problem. Wojo just oh, loses his there. mind and his players follow suit. Seton Hall podcast, Tommy. Stay focused on Seton Hall with us. Sorry, I always got to do my dig on some of the other coaches around here. I, th- I think what happens is, Mike, in, in this moment, you become this vocal leader or this demonstrative person that I don't think the fans had seen from you prior. So it kind of puts you in this senior leadership role at the forefront of it all. There have been some points in your career where you were more of the the role player and then you've developed into the role model. Even in your role on the court, when you started your first three seasons, you started 34 out of 101 games, splitting time with Ish at the four spot for various reasons, injury, style of play. But by your senior season, you had gone from 16 minutes and four points a game to essentially almost doubling those numbers. But prior to that, what we want to know about is, Tommy and I used to joke, we used to read the message boards. Should Ish start? Should Mike start? You know, who should get the bulk of the minutes? I know that's not probably what happens behind the scenes. What was your dynamic with Ish relative to that relationship? Me and Ish, we were actually roommates my uh, my freshman year. Really? Uh, okay. I'm a team guy. Um, obviously, we all humans. We want the best for ourselves. Um, I felt like um, there was a big part of my game just being in that role that I'm like, I have to sacrifice. And all that played into my decision not to play basketball anymore. It was a it was a good time and a great learning experience. Um, you know, Ish was really good at defense. Uh, I was just an all around guy. Um, I wanted to be in the. Like, I love to run. I love to play. So it was more like we as a team we had a goal and we believed in coach. And so whatever coach decided on as a team guy you have to go with it i know countlessly i worked i worked at like different stuff that i wanted to do but i just know like when whatever time i get in the game i have to produce just so so it was more on like an everyday prove yourself situation for me as a player it it's not the best for a player because a lot of players need their confidence just so they could like have their best games. Like if you can see my senior year, I was just, I came back with based on my promise to like Miles. I love Miles. I love those guys. I was like, I already know I'm not playing basketball after college. I'll be honest with you guys. I'm not going to play. It was like, wow. I was like, there's a lot that went into my decision making, but I just feel like I've had a great college experience i've got a degree which my mom really wanted i just feel like i want to do something else but the idea of like going back with these young guys even though he wasn't looking bright at that time it was a challenge i accepted so my role with each was just more like hey prove yourself the team needs you uh we have a bunch of guys who you know what they're gonna do but we do, we need you guys to do this um, there have been another night, I remember like the Butler, the Butler game at home. I think this was like Kadeen's Angel and there's a senior, senior year. Um, I remember that like we had to win that game, Ish was out. And I 
had to step in, play 35 minutes. I remember the, the game, that same season, the first game of the season, played Creighton. We needed to win that game. So it was a lot of situation where you was just like that guy that would feel in or that guy that just come and make sure you try, you just, just try to do everything possible to like help the guys. So for a player, it was a new role for me. I wasn't used to it, but I'm a humble guy. I love my team at that point. I would just like do that every day and be content with it. I never one day complained about my minutes. You could ask those. I never would complain about my minutes. I would always think that if you if you give if you give your best and people people would see it, people recognize it, and when it's time, they're gonna I like they're gonna give it to you. It's like if you think you wanna play twenty minutes, do your best in practice. If you wanna play thirty minutes, I never stop going out of practice. I will come back the next day, play as hard as I want. Every player wants to play thirty minutes. On the sixteen minutes, eighteen minutes I would play, I would try to give my best. So I, that was like my mentality, so like playing on that team. I don't think see no fans ever saw you complain about anything, Mike. So coming into your senior season, you mentioned that people thought that Seton Hall was going to be the floor mat. Most pundits were expecting a down year, at least compared to what the last three were. But the team certainly surprised people and with no small contributions of yourself. I mean, you made huge leap. Mike already talked about almost 30 minutes a game, almost 10 points a game, shooting a gaudy 60% from the field and improving free throw percentage from 56 to 69. And if anything stood out, it was that championship game in the Wooden Legacy Classic against Miami. Uh, Miami came to that game 5-0. and The Hall was off to a rocky start a bit with losses to Nebraska and St. Louis. And you led the team with 21 points with a perfect eight from eight from the field. How important was that game for you to show the team that you could be a major statistical contributor compared to the previous seasons? Okay, yep, we, we went into that game with two losses, one really bad losses. And I mean, the Nebraska game was a bad loss, but it was a really hostile environment. Um, this is an inside team um, belief. If you go into a tournament, you hope for the best, the best. You want to go three and zero, but coach will always say, "At least you you take you take two out of the three games. Take two. That's the worst. That's the worst possible outcome you would want." So we came in there. We saw the kind of things that was in there. So our goal was to get as much wins as we can. But it was always like we knew, like okay, we always want to leave this tournament. At least two wins. So first two games we got our wins, and we we looking at a trophy here, guys. We looking at a trophy. It's a final game. We're playing against Miami, which at that time was deemed the best team in the tournament. Coach came, gave his talk. Hey guys, we're here now. We're gonna have a bunch of fans here today, so it's just gonna be another home game for you guys. Uh, you guys go out there, play, have fun, but. You guys did what you were supposed to do, get two. But this time, guys, we played for the trophy. And the locker room went crazy. So everybody was ready for the game. Um, I remember going into that game and just feeling it. Um, like I said, yes, as a player, there was a lot I knew I could do. But just being in my role, I was never able to do it. Um, 
I don't force this. That's why I will always shoot a high percentage shot. I never force this. So going into that game, I was feeling it. I was feeling it from the post. Still, um, Miles post, Quincy post, they'll tell me. And they kept feeding him the ball. And it was a really good day. But like I said, the other team was doing it. They were playing, they were playing well. I remember at one time, he was really close that he did have hit a shot. They would have won the game. But you, the team played a lot of great defense. Um, he wasn't just my scoring. Um, I know Miles scored a lot that game. Quincy, everybody played really well. Uh, we were a young team. I was the oldest one. We wanted, we wanted, we wanted the trophy so bad because um, at that time it would just be like something that we could talk about. Something we could like, hey guys, look, you talked down on us. We did something. Um, so it was more like when we got close to winning the game, we had we brought it in. Like, hey guys, I remember it was Queen C. We here now. Now let's play defense. I remember being really, really tired, and Willard asking me, "You need a sub?" And I looked. I was like, "Mike, is it is it the time you actually take a sub and go out, or knowing how well you're playing in the game, you stay in because you know it can count if you do?" And I was like, "No, I don't need a sub." And I remember how if if you see the pictures and the videos, how happy we were because. In my four or five years at Seal Hall, we never won any of those tournaments. I mean, we won the Big East, but any tournament we went, we always came back home with two wins. So I was really happy. The guys were happy. We had a trophy, and we were really happy about that. You, you about, talk about how, how happy that you were as a team and, and the players in the locker room, but over the course of the five years that you were part of that program with that recruiting class, the fan base truly was happy and had smiles on their face because of what you guys did on the court relative to your legacy, making it to the NCAA tournament. You had a chance to play with some great players, right? You got Isaiah, Miles Powell, Angel Delgado, KC and Desi. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here, all right? If you were the head coach and you had a chance to pick one of those five guys to start a team, who are you picking and why? Hmm. I have my answer, and I'm going to tell you why I have my answer. Um, and this is not a shot at nobody. It's just out of all my relations. I love every guy, every one of my teammates, and I've been close with everybody, and I've kept it 100 with everybody. I would pick Miles Power to start a team. Me and Miles Power, we've been roommates at one point. Um, he's looked at me as a bigger brother. I know, I know his heart pretty much. Um, as much as as much point as Miles was calling the game, my senior year, Miles would force me to shoot the ball. <laughs> he would tell me, "You shoot all the time in practice. Why are you not shooting in the game?" He would go to Jared. He would be like, "Jared, you miss it. I don't care. If I pass you the ball, shoot it." He would go to Shavar. He would say, "Shoot the ball." He would go to Quincy. He would, he made sure everybody felt comfortable. And I saw it firsthand because um, I was pretty much really involved in everything that was going on. And I would see, I would see him in the game as that guy that was emotionally, an, an emotional leader. He would see a freshman put his head down and he would like tell you to pick it back up. He was an emotional guy. He was, every, everybody would say this about him. 
he was always there to carry anybody up. He would know when I have a bad game and he would come to my room. So for me, it's more than just the basketball court. I need a guy like that, that his teammates know they could go to 100% and they know they could count on. You know, I had my best year with him. I had a lot of fun with him. So obviously, that's going to be the guy I'm going. It goes way beyond basketball. It goes with our relationship and me knowing the kind of person. So my other teammates were in great. It was just like the impact he had in my life. So I would make a business decision knowing he would do this for his other teammates and that could help a team that was proposed to be a bad team to be actually a contender, not just only because of the players, it's just because of the morale and the law. Now, to your point, your team was a contender, actually made it to the NCAA tournament, which put it at four appearances for yourself. You're only one of three players to ever do that in Pirate history. It's you, Brian Caver, and Arturis Karnishevis. Where does that honor rank for you? Um, I don't know. I kind of like my best moment, my single, like he's talking about some of my stats, like the Miami game. I don't even remember. I honestly, I'm, the, the pretty much the game I remember my stats is my first game because that was, that could easily be my best game maybe. <laughs> that was the game I loved the most out of all games that I've played. My first game that I started. Um, it's just a thing where it's like I see that as a blessing for being in a really good program at Seal Hall. It was more like the guys gave you this opportunity. Every of the guys that I played with made this happen for me. I didn't do it. Zeke, Desi, Kadeem, Angel, Ish, Sheed, everybody, Quincy, Everybody I play with, the names I don't, I haven't mentioned, they all made it possible for it, for it to happen for me. So I, I, I give credit to that guy. So it was more like a, I looked at, I look at it at how many times I've seen him me to because it was more like a team achievement, not just me. So I was lucky to be there at that time. Well, not only were you able to get the achievement of getting to the tournament four times. Your educational achievements are just as wonderful. You posted a 3.56 GPA. You earned a bachelor's in economics. You got your master's in finance. Like I said before, named four times to the academic all Big East team, and you won Big East Scholar Athlete of the Year. You then parlayed your success that into a, in a, in a, into a full-time position with Goldman Sachs, which is you know impressive nonetheless. After all these wins that we talked about, where does your academic success rank in your list of achievements? Um, my academic su success, I don't look at it as a success yet because it's still an ongoing process. Every day in my life, I'm learning. Um, I realize how much I could do by paying attention to the things around me. Um, everything that happens for a reason in life, me having to sit out a year at Seal Hall opened my eyes to a whole different level of things I could do. So me, I see all the disappointments in the past, me redshirting led to me having a fifth year which led to me getting a master's. So all that happened for a reason, but I think the ranking would come in terms of like 
what I do with everything I got from City Hall. Mike was giving all this in life. He was blessed to be on the team that went to the NCAA four times. He was blessed enough to be at a program that gave him the opportunity to get a degree. He was blessed enough to get a master's as well. What had Mike done with it? That would be the final thing to make me rank it. And it's been like a thing that I'm thinking of. Um, I'm looking at it in, in the sense that, okay, I have all this stuff. I have to keep working out of it. This opportunity, I got to make sure that I make the best out of it so the next man could understand that if Mike could do it, I could do it. So it's still like process that's going on in my head. Well, Mike, before we let our guests go, we make them walk the plank. We've got five rapid-fire questions for you. We want five rapid-fire answers. Don't think too hard. First thing that comes to the top of your head, give it to us. Are you ready? Would I say, am I good to say pass? On <laughs> no, you can't, you can't no, pass. You cannot pass here. This is not the segment that we edit. You, you got to answer these questions. Okay. All right. Are you ready, Mike? Yes. Okay, question number one. Most points scored in any game at any level? 41. <laughs> Which team was your biggest arch rival? Uh, I think Villanova. Toughest road environment? Uh, it could be Butler. Toughest opposing player you ever played against? I don't, it's a lot. It's a lot. I give it to a lot of players. Best Seton Hall player you've ever seen play? Best Seton Hall player, Miles. All right, bonus question. You talk about the arch rival with Villanova. You got to pick between the two. What was the biggest win, winning the Big East tournament at MSG or beating Nova at the Rock on your senior day to essentially punch your ticket to the NCAA tournament? I'll take my senior night. Congratulations, Mike. You've walked the plank. I'll take my senior night any day. Um, it, it, it's, it's a moment that goes way beyond all the trophies for me. Um, trophy is good for the program, it's good for the fan base, but that was a me question. So that really has a lot of impact in my life, looking at that picture and knowing how many people were there to support us and to beat me fell at my final game. So that was a big for me and that's yeah, a great picture of you with the nigerian flag at the end with all your teammates swamping you that we used on the uh, day of that podcast now mike you've had awesome success at seton hall we never met and we didn't really mention kevin willard you know what kind of role did coach willard play with you coach willard is a great guy um he's a great coach uh, he understands all his players um, he knows, but I mean, as a coach, you have to know who all your players are. He was always that guy that, Mike, whenever you need me, I'm here for you. Even with after basketball, well, there was a time, you know, like the master's program lasted for two years or either one and a half year. My scholarship ended, um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but, um, my scholarship would just end like after basketball was over. But Wheeler was just like, you're, you're part of the Sing Hall family. You can still keep your housing until school's over. I was like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, he's like, whatever you need, this is, this is what it takes to be a pirate. 
it's not the moment basketball ends for us. We're going to make sure you are okay. So I was able to still stay at school and finish the rest of my academics. So that was really huge for me because I just felt like, okay, what would I do at this point? Do I have to be a DEA? I really need to get out of school. I didn't have a place to stay. Do I need to go get my own house? And it's like, no, you just can stay in the dumps. You can stay in the off campus housing, whatever you need. So, I mean, he was just that guy. Even we, another big thing Coach really played in my life. Summer was the big time for basketball for every kid. Coaches want to see their players in the summer because Mike can't shoot a free throw. Okay, Mike, this summer we're working on your free throw. Mike can shoot a jump shot. This summer, Mike, we're working on your jump shot. I went to Coach Wheeler. I was like, hey, Coach, this summer I'm going to do an internship. I don't know what the internship is like. I don't know what finance is. I want to see firsthand what the lifestyle is. If I'm going to make this decision, if I want to keep playing basketball, I want to do academics, this is my final chance for me to start. Because people would be like, Mike, but this is your going into your senior year. You can't do that. So, Mike, that's what I wanted to ask you before we wrap up here. You talked about how loved you felt and how supported you felt on senior day. And then we started talking about Kevin Willard and the support that he gave you as you're transitioning. But you started talking about this summer into your senior season. And I think that that story is a story that is really important in the landscape of what we're seeing in college sports. We get so focused on the game and the result and maybe the money that's even driven behind the sport. But at the end of the day, it's about the student athlete. And here's yeah. you making a decision to say, you know what? I'm going to come back for my fifth year grad senior season, but I am not going to lose sight of the fact that I have a career outside of basketball beyond that season. And here's yeah. Willard saying, you know what? Take three months off do your internship with Cantor Fitzgerald and don't even think about basketball. You're going to be one yeah, of the biggest pieces of our team. And I don't even want you to touch a basketball. Right. So yeah. talk, talk about Kevin, talk about the Seton Hall program about how they really put their student athlete first beyond everything else. Because I think that's something that Seton Hall should be proud of and should really resonate with the future recruits. It's it's I'll tell you a good thing about this program. Just before we wrap it up, uh, it doesn't just take players to build a great program. It doesn't. Players come and go. Two things that will always stay, or fans would always stay. Single fans have been really great over the years. I still see a lot of them on the way, and I still get my respect. I, I go to drink with a lot of them pre-COVID. Um, Single <laughs> <laughs> no um, fans love them love their support they will come out for you at any night and whenever the ref does something crazy you would hear them yell so much that you would it will make you laugh sometimes and then the coach um coach has done a great job um he's he's done his best to, he's trying to figure out different ways to make the program advance um, and the love and support he's getting from the school and the fans would continue to help him like take this program to the next level. So um, it's not just players, the fans, big kudos to the fans and to the coach as well. So that, that's, that's how I wrap it up. Well, Mike, we can't thank you enough for joining us. Your energy is infectious. It, this has been one of the most enjoyable interviews I've gone through, and I'm not just blowing smoke here, Mike. Thank you for joining us. All right, thank you so much, man. Uh, appreciate it, Mike. Have a good one, all right? You too, guys.
So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcast, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Danny Calandrillo, Adrian Griffin, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 